Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardana Asban, here with my friend and Chavuta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Shabbat, Kuf Mem Gimel, 143. Uh, I reposted again on our WhatsApp group and the Facebook page, the Google form. Uh, we're looking for any of our learners to please uh, join us for our CM, either to learn, uh, learn, finish Masachat Shabbat, um, but we also want to turn to you and hear what you learned or one of your favorite passages or thoughts that you had while learning Masachat Shabbat. So please fill out that form and let us know what you want to be speaking about. Uh, and we're really looking forward to a meaningful program. Um, this uh, here is the end of uh, Parakut Aleph um, and Parakut Bet. So I think Anne and I are each going to take a Mishnah um, and do a little bit about each of these Mishnahs that are here. Uh, so I'll start reading. Beit Shammai Omrim. Beit Shammai says, um, So we can remove, Beit Shammai says, we can remove bones and husks from a table um, by hand. Says, now they used to eat on these like huge table boards. They you sort of remove the whole board and you shake it clean. And really here what the discussion is about is, can you take these bones and nutshells, which can't even be eaten by animals or not even animal food. So they are completely muksa. Um, and therefore the question is, do we say therefore that it's something that you can't move or you can move? So Beit Shammai here would say, yes, even though, uh, you know, you can take them off by hand because they're not actually uh, muksa. And this would sort of be agreeing, you know, with sort of a more narrow view of muksa. Whereas Beit Hillel would say, no, this actually is muksa because it can't be used for anything and you sort of have to do it in a very indirect way. Mishnah goes on and says, Ma'avirin me'al ha'shulchan, we remove from the table by hand, peirin pachot mikazayat, any crumbs that are less than a kazayat, the se'ar shel afunin u'sha'ar adasin. And we also can remove pea pods and lentil pods, um, because these are used as these are used as animal food. So again, I think what the mission is making a distinction here about is sort of leftovers from your meal that can't be used or eaten by anybody. Whereas you could have this seir afunim and seir adashim, right? These pea pods or these, you know, um, or uh, the lentil pods or crumbs that you could theoretically, you know, gather and then feed to an animal. So it's not really considered to be muksa. Um, and now they're going to go with another halacha here, the Mishnah, about the table on Shabbat. Sefug, uh, a sponge. If it has a leather handle, you're allowed to wipe the table with it. So the idea here is, is that what we get concerned about is, is that you're going to wring the sponge. Uh, one of the things that I read that was interesting is, is that it's actually a machlokas what is the issue about wringing a sponge on Shabbat? Um, and some people say it's a total of whitening uh, because part of what you did was like wring water out, I guess, when you whiten things or something like that. There was some some process there. And other people say it's dash, it's threshing, right? Because you're sort of wringing, you're, you're removing or separating out, um, you know, something that you that you don't need the way you would do when you thresh uh, the way you would do when you thresh grain. So if you're not going to touch the sponge directly, but in other words, you're going to manage it with this leather handle, you would be allowed to use it. Ve'im lav, and if you don't, ain you're not allowed to wipe it uh, with that sort of table. Um, 
Um, and so the Chachamim say that in either case, uh, you can use it on Shabbat when it's dry, meaning we don't care if it has a leather handle or not. They're going to disagree with the Tanakama here. And they're going to say you can only use the sponge with it's dry, um, but also that it is not Makabel Tuma, right? Because we know that what is Makabel Tuma um, are the types of uh, kalim, of utensils that either are metal or leather goods or wooden or garment, but a sponge really doesn't fit into any of these categories. So one of the things that this mission is telling us here is that a sponge is not Makabel Tuma, which is kind of interesting because we know liquids do make things, can make things susceptible to Tuma. And here we're learning that a sponge is not in that category of material. So um, so that's the Mishnah itself. So it, it's, it's interesting to see. It deals with a couple of, I think, very common cases that we have um, with, uh, you know, with our experience with Shabbat about cleaning a table off. Um, before I move on, Anne, anything you want to say about this uh, Mishnah? I just want to point out three small parts of the Gemara here. I mean, I would just note that um, based on this Mishnah, I would say that we shouldn't really be able to clean off our tables on Shabbat, and yet we do, right? So I think part of that question is, how is it that we that we end up, you know, fully clearing the table and not just the things that might be acceptable for animal fodder, especially if we don't have animals to, you know, consider those items fodder. And I would say that we, this goes back, at least some of the explanation goes back to the fact that we have certain expectations of what a a room that is ready for Shabbat is going to look like so that when you clear the table, it's kind of, it actually comes to be considered part of the meal. Now that's not on our duff at all, but I, I just want to explain like why, you know, right. why otherwise we we're all Although going against been, the, but I have been, in, but you, I'm sure you have been in people's homes who sort of like, if they do that last meal of Sudashli Sheed or even Shabbat and like, they're not going to be using the kitchen or the table again. They sort of, I have seen people who leave it and I've always thought it was based on this Mishnah or they just didn't want to clean up till after Shabbos. But I do think there are I think that a lot of, I think that a lot of people leave it because, you know, they're not going to prepare for after Shabbat because of based on this Mishnah, all of that for sure. My concern is I want to make sure that everybody understands that the people who do clean up because it's part of their Oneg Shabbat to have a clean table, but because they don't consider, you know, these things were not mukta to begin with because they were always designated to be you know, disposed of or whatever, not exactly because right. disposed of is a, is a tricky zone there, but it's, a, you know, it comes to the same thing of there are people who wash dishes on Shabbat, the people who do not wish, wash dishes on Shabbat unless they don't have right. enough. Right. And, and those nuances in actual practice are not always found in the Mishnah, right. Which is making a, a giving us the guidelines of how to move forward. And then when it comes to actual practicality, we in our day and age and so on have, other factors also getting involved. Right, exactly. Um, so there were just three small pieces of the Gemara here that I wanted to read. First is a very interesting comment, the first comment of the Gemara. Amar of Nachman, Rav Nachman comes and says, Anu ein lanu Yehuda. Right, so the idea here is that the original opinion of Beit Shammai follows a Muksa version of Rabbi Shimon, right, which is a much more limited view of Muksa. And Rabbi Huda is that much more expansive view of Muksa that we keep reading and seeing in the Gemara. So Rav Nachman says, we can't anu ein, anu ein lanu, right? That basically we can't actually say that this is the actual correct version of the Mishnah because we know that Beit Shammai usually is like Rabbi Yehuda, right? That meaning Beit Shammai really applies Muksa in that much more expansive way. Ubeit Hillel to Rabbi Shimon. And Beit Hillel is the one who usually limits Muksa and therefore, it really would be like, like Rabbi Shimon. And therefore, it would. Rabbi Nachman is saying here 
is that actually the two opinions in the beginning of that Mishnah should be reversed. So I think that's very interesting. And the Gemara doesn't even therefore go through trying to quote other Brisas or Mishnahs where they can prove their point. I think Rav Nachman is just saying this can't be a correct version of the Mishnah because I don't see anywhere else where I could prove that Beit Shammai doesn't hold anything other than Rabbi Yehuda and that Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel, always goes with Rabbi Shimon. So I thought that was a very, just an interesting comment because again, we see a lot of what the Amorim do is really try to piece together is the text that they have for the Mishnah make sense? And here's Rav Nachman saying, nope, it actually doesn't make sense here and we actually need to, um, we need to, um, uh, we need to reverse it. Um, the next piece that I thought was interesting on this Mishnah is the following, you know, the, the next piece of the Gemara, where it says, Ma'avirin hashochan peirurin, right? We can remove crumbs that are smaller than a kazayas. So the Gemara now makes an observation. This Mishnah is in support of Rabbi Yochanan. Even if you have crumbs smaller than a kazayas, you're not actually allowed to be to destroy them, meaning you need to treat them like their food. Um, and therefore, you're not actually allowed to sort of just like get rid of them, you know, in any way um, that you that you would like to get rid of them. Um, and um, and, you know, especially because like an animal or somebody else um, could eat them. Um, and so because if you read this mission carefully, it just says to remove it. Um, but it doesn't say anything about destroying it. So again, I think this is a great example of where the Mishnah, the Gemara pays very close attention to the language of the Mishnah and therefore relates it back to another statement of Rabbi Yochanan. Um, and the third thing that I wanted to just say about this Mishnah is um, later on, it gives one of those, you know, uh, mnemonics that it likes, Sharnam Shapaz. Um, and the first one of that is the following, Shmuel Latameh, Shmuel had his reason. Here they're talking about using bread for a purpose other than eating. A person can use bread for all his needs. Meaning, what solution was to a lot of these muksa issues was that essentially um, you could basically just use bread, um, like put things, um, uh, you know, on bread um, in order to sort of... Um, move it around. And so here they were in the discussion of dates. Um, and so he's saying, yeah, that's like a totally acceptable way. And then the Gemara gets into this whole interesting discussion of like all different ways that the rabbis came up with. I'm not going to read all of it because we need to get to the next Mishnah. All different ways that they got around what to do with these date pits. Um, and some of them are funny. They're like, they would toss them behind the couch. And I'm sitting here reading like, oh my God, if anyone did that in my family, I would kill them. <laughs> but it's interesting to see like, this obviously was like a real life issue. And they really go through multiple examples of trying to show like, what do you do with these pits that you really can't remove? Because like not even animals eat them. But at the same time, we know they're disgusting to leave on the table. So another great example of sort of the practical piece of how halacha and Shabbat were actually observed in these times. Um, I think you're going to get the hadron of this parak because we're moving on to the next parak. Yes. Okay. Um, this past parak was Notel Adam et Beno. Now we come on to Perka Chavit. Chavit Shinishbara. We're talking now, this Mishnah that we're going to have near at the beginning of the new parak is very, very reminiscent of another Mishnah that you'll recall quite distinctly, I have no doubt. Chavit Shinishbara Metzlin Himenu Mazon Chalosh Sudot. When you have a barrel that breaks 
You can, and let's say it's a barrel of wine, it's a barrel of oil. You can save from it the amount of food for your three meals. You'll recall that we had this discussion in the context of a fire, right? Or if you left your your food in the in the fire, what can you take out? And you can invite others to come and take for themselves, which we also discussed, right? It's a very parallel case where we have a situation where something is, you know, it's a chavit that's been destroyed. So now what are you going to do? You're going to either lose that food or you can take use, make use of it. You cannot store it or plan for after Shabbat, but you can get all your buddies to come in and they can also partake. So they do so, right? So for all that we're in a new parak, we've got some similar vocabulary and some similar issues, in fact, or parallel, comparable issues to what you're dating, what you've just talked about, right? So you cannot squeeze. Now, what can't you squeeze? Okay, so this is exactly what you mentioned, you know, that we have liquids, that those liquids are considered... Um, I would say a precursor to tuma, right? Once something has been in a liquid, then the, that item itself that has been in the liquid can be considered, can become tame, can be rendered impure. And the mash can include wine and oil. And in this case, the question is what happens when you've got the, your fruit juice here, right? You cannot, you cannot squeeze the fruit, the fruit to bring out the juice. Now, that's a question, again, of dash, right? Are you squeezing out liquid to extract their liquids that's already literally dash, right? Threshing means, you know, pushing or pressing something out. And specifically with gidule karka, specifically with um, food that grows from the ground, produce that grows from the ground. But if they come out of their own accord, and if they come out of their own accord, that same liquid is now prohibited. If you're eating, right? If there are fruits that were designated for eating, and the, a little juice comes out on the plate, whatever, that's mutar. The imli mashkin, but what if they were designated for drinking? You're going to make your orange juice or whatever from them, lemonade. Hayotse mehen asur, because that requires actual squeezing to get the liquid out to make the beverage, as opposed to eating where, yeah, you're getting the juice, but you're also getting the rest of the fruit. And the fact that some might be squeezed out is is largely irrelevant, right? It, it happens um, and again, this is was reminiscent to me of what you read, Yerdin, about Rabbi Shimon. It is, you know, automatic in that way, but it's also, but it's also part of what you. I mean, that's part of eating. Chalot dvash shiriskan me'er Shabbat v'yatsu me'atzman asurin v'rebilazim matir. And what about honeycombs? Now, this is kind of a a beautiful example because it's not the first thing I would think of. You know, honestly, in terms of things that I might want to make sure are prepared before Shabbat, because, uh, you know, for me, most of my honey comes in a jar, right? This is city, this is city living. But they're, when they're talking about honeycombs, and then you, you're going to crush it to get the honey to come out of it, but then some's going to come out of it on its own. So, so the basic sack is that, that is prohibited to use that honey, but Rabbi Lezer says you can't. Now, okay, before we go on, Dana, do you have any other comment on the mission itself no go on okay it's here we a, go it's a pretty straightforward mission i mean the gemara is a good discussion so i i think so i think it's straightforward and i i particularly find it interesting that it's you know basically lines up with what we've already seen in terms of the needs of the food and so on shabbat tana here's the gemara 
לא יספוג ביין ולא יתהפך בשמן. You can't soak up the wine and you can't collect the oil in your hand. שלא יעשה כדרך שהוא עושה בחול. Because the whole idea is that you don't want to treat, you want to conduct yourself on Shabbat in the same way that you conduct yourself during the week. So first of all, I'm going, scratching my head going, collecting oil in your hand is not the way, is that really how they conducted themselves during the week? Because it's certainly not our general handling of oil, right? And we have here, right, it's a brighter that the Chazal incorporate to un- explain what's going on in the Mishnah. What happens if fruit, this is, a, this is a brighter, right? It's another piece of Tanakh material which is brought to be in the conversation about this Mishnah. So it's not exactly a comment on, but it's going to give us commentary on. The fruits are scattered in the courtyard. Now what are you going to do? Melaket al-yad al-yad. So you can gather them one by one, right? Um, in the, from the courtyard, right? Gather one up, eat, gather one up, eat. I'm reminded of, you know, the, the child who takes a bite out of each apple because it's just that first bite that he wants. Um, but you can't collect them into a basket. You can't collect them into a box. Because again, the concern is that we're not going to treat the, these items the same way that we do during the week. Which again, this is not quite the same thing as saying that they're mukta, right? They have a purpose on Shabbat. You can eat them on Shabbat, but the whole idea of storing them, that becomes something that you would not be doing except for on Chol, and therefore don't do it on Shabbat. Okay. Um, okay. Now we come to the interesting part about squeezing the fruit, um, and which leads into a more dicey section. So Bear with me for one second on the fruit, which I think is pretty straightforward. And so, don't squeeze your fruit, right? You're not allowed to squeeze fruit on Shabbat. Fruit liquid that seeps out of the fruit on its own is also not okay, except for, again, we talked about how Rabbi Huda will say that if you're supposed to be eating that fruit and then some liquid seeps out on its own, that liquid is permitted because the fruit itself was, was okay. Again, designated for juicing, too bad. You can't have that liquid either. The Gemara here says, Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. Modehaya Rabbi Yehuda lechachamim bezeitim v'anavim. Rabbi Yehuda agreed with chachamim, meaning the, the more permitted, permissive view, when it came to olives and grapes. Now, olives and grapes, of course, are the fruit from which wine and oil come from. Maitama, why did Rabbi Yehuda agree for those? Kevan d'leschita ninhu. Because this is those particular foods, meaning specifically olives and grapes, are generally used for squeezing. Meaning, I guess it was not a culture of just always just stem eating olives and, and grapes. Rabbi Yochanan Amer, halachik Rabbi Huda, Bashar Perot, ve'en halachik Rabbi Huda, bezitim v'anavim. The Gemara Paskins here, in the more machmir position, to say that you should not be using, you should not be uh, permitting the squeezing of olives and grapes either, even if it happens to be how they are primarily used. Okay. Okay. Any new comments yet? No, I mean, I don't know how far down the Gemara you're reading. I just thought the, the piece about um, the bottom of the page with the machlokas over Tuman Tower with milk. I that's where I'm jumping to. Exactly. Okay. That's, that's, I just wanted to give the context of what's going on, you know, the explanation of the Mishnah, right. because the next piece that I want to talk about is much further removed 
from the mission itself, except for the fact that it's talking about liquids. And as we said, liquids become, you know, enter into this category of um, being they can render something else, uh, give it the capacity to be Makabaltuma, and of course they themselves can be rendered Tameh. So, what are we talking about? We're talking about so the Savar Behuda Stam Asor. What Rebihuda is talking about in the case of undesignated fruit. What does it mean undesignated fruit? You don't know if it's going to be for juicing or you don't know if it's going to be for eating. So now what happens? The liquid seeps out, and and what are you going to do with it? Isn't that prohibited? And the answer to this comes from left field. Vahatanan, didn't we learn? Meaning in a different Mishnah somewhere else, right? Vahatanan. Didn't we learn that a woman's milk, meaning a nursing mother, that the milk itself is considered a liquid and therefore it can render food, anything um, that it comes in contact with, food that it comes in contact with, to be, it can be, that food can then um, be subject to becoming tame. And the point here is, whether, whether she has expressed her milk intentionally or whether it, you know, came out, came out unintentionally. And the claim here is, we're going to see it rejected in a moment, the claim here is that if it's the milk of an animal, right, which milk is a mashka, it doesn't have to be nursing mother, you know, any milk is a mashka, it counts as one of these liquids that will render that, which it, that food which it comes in contact with, um, it will give it the capacity to be rendered impure. The milk of an animal, it says, it will only do so um, if that milk, if it was intentionally milked, right? The idea, the same I, parallel, I guess, to the idea of you're going to squeeze your, free, your fruit. So here you've milked your cow and you have the milk and now that milk is going to render whatever it comes in contact with um, to, has the potential to be tamay as compared to if, I don't know, if a few drops dropped out of the udder of the cow, that's not considered um, a mashka in the same way. Except for Amar Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva comes, and his logic is, of course, impeccable. He says, This is one of those kalvachomer reasoning. Now, we've talked about kalvachomer in the past, right, where we have a, a lesser case and a more extreme case, and we learn from the lesser case. If it's true about the lesser case, then all the more so is going to be true about the more extreme case. So what do we have here? If you're going to say that a woman's milk, where it's really only designated to begin with to her, to the child who's nursing from her, right? You say that which is so specifically designated it's going to be expansively um, considered a mashke to the extent that whether she intentionally expressed her milk or she did not, the um, item with which it comes in contact has a potential to be rendered impure. Then the milk of an animal, again, presumably a cow, but it could be a sheep, it could be a goat, right? The milk of an animal that is designated it's not designated, right? You could give it to a small, you could give it to children, you could give it to adults. Meaning, if the audience is, if the audience of the narrow case, um, if the, let me say this carefully, if the audience of the narrow case of the woman, meaning only Katanim, and yet her milk will has a capacity, whether it came out of her volitionally or unvolitionally, 
right? She wanted to express milk or it was unintentional and she excreted some anyway. And that is going to render things impure. Then all the more so, chalav behema, which you know, has a more expansive audience because it's going to be both children and adults, then Eino Din, isn't that obviously going to be the case that it would also render um, that both the milk that was milked intentionally and the milk that, you know, emerged from the cow's udders unintentionally, both of those should render whatever they come in contact with to give it the capacity to become impure. Amrulo im tamei chalav ha'isha shalol ratzon shadam it says, and this is, we're coming to the really, to the very end of the daf. Um, says, if a woman's milk that renders the food items susceptible to become tamay, even if she has not intentionally expressed that milk, then so too, and now we come to the question of what about blood of any wound, of her wound, Right, which is also blood is also a mashka, and and food that has come in contact with blood is also has the capacity to be rendered impure. So the example is that too would be the case. Does that not mean that the milk of an animal would make the food of the food with which it comes in contact also um, possible to be rendered impure? Now, every time we talk about tumentara, I feel like we kind of go down a rabbit hole. Um, but the bottom line is that of any of these liquids that can have the capacity, once, once they come in contact with the food, picture an apple, right? Apple is now, you know, let's say it's, I don't want to say it's just washed, right, with, with water, but that's the, that's the visual, right? But it comes in contact with wine or with oil or with milk or with blood, right? Any of these things. Now, after that, that a- apple is, ca- has the capacity to become impure. And so that is, you know, the the concern of that happening, right, means that then it is fundamentally not usable on Shabbat, which all of this goes back to the question of the fruit juice of Rabbi Yehuda, where he says, if the fruit juice comes out unintentionally, right, for, from a fruit that you have intent to squeeze, right, so it's going to be juiced, then that juice is not acceptable to use on Shabbat. It is muk, so you cannot use it. But if the fruit was going to be eaten, um, and was designated as such, and the fruit and the juice comes out unintentionally, like the same, that's the parallel there, um, then you are in good shape and you can eat it. Woof. That was actually, you did a great job with that. Um, I think I'm going to leave us hanging. Because <laughs> really, the, the rest of this discussion takes place on the next stop. It does. We're sort, we're sort of out of time. But what I really loved about this, and this is, I'm giving everyone a sneak peek of what I want to talk about tomorrow is, I love the back and forth here, which we're going to continue to see on the next staff between Rabbi Akiva and the Chachamim. Um, And and we usually tend to see this particularly with Rabbi Akiva, that the Chachamim tend to sort of push back on some of his thinking sometimes. And here we have a wonderful example of it, right? They say one opinion, he comes and says a different opinion. And then they have this really nice back and forth with a few exchanges of trying to work through why he doesn't think the Chacham right and why the Chacham don't think Rabbi Akiva is correct. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's something to pay attention to as we continue our Dafyomi learning, sort of this pushback that we see sometimes specifically with Rabbi Akiva. I would note that especially with Rabbi Akiva, very often, at least by the end of the discussion, and we'll see tomorrow, stay tuned, 
um, there's defer deference to his opinion when it comes to halacha, and there is less deference with regard to his opinion when it comes to agarata. That is for sure true. So with that, we'll end. That's our job for the day. Rink us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff. It's really discussed a multitude of topics. And until tomorrow, go and learn.